Gracious God, may only your words be spoken and your words be heard. As you all know, the word gospel, if you look at the derivation of the word in both Latin and in Greek, the word gospel means good news. So when Deacon Glenda introduces it each Sunday, we're hearing the holy good news of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. And at the end of the reading, we're hearing the good news of the Lord. Well, depending on the passage that happens to be assigned for any given Sunday in the church year, sometimes the good news of the gospel is a bit more difficult to find. When the assigned gospel is one of Jesus' healing stories, there it is. It's apparent. When it is one of his miracle stories, there it is even bigger. The good news is apparent. And the same is true of most of Jesus' parables. But along comes a passage like this morning's gospel, where the good news doesn't exactly jump off the page at you. And in fact, the passage seems filled with what sounds like horrible news. Some were speaking about the temple, how beautiful it is the splendor of its stonework and memorial gifts. And Jesus says, As for these things, you see the days will come when not one stone will be left on another. All will be thrown down. All this, in other words, all this that you're admiring so much, all the time is coming when every single stone in that building will end up in a heap of rubble. Your structures, he's saying, that which gives you security will be torn down. And it gets worse. There will be signs, many false prophets. There will be wars and insurrections, we're told. Nations rising up against nations, kingdoms against kingdoms, earthquakes, famines, plagues, dreadful portents. And then, when you don't think it can get much worse, it gets personal. Before this, he says, they will arrest you and persecute you. They will hand you over to the authorities. You'll be put in prison. You will be brought before kings and governors because of my name. This will give you an opportunity to testify. And there's this glimpse of light. You should make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time because Jesus will give you words and a wisdom that none of your opponents can contradict. God will look out for you, and by your endurance, you will gain your souls. But sandwiched in between those words of comfort, the mood darkens even more. Persecution, he says, is going to come not just from the outside, people you don't know, but from those closest to you. Betrayal will come from your closest friends, your own family. Some of you will be put to death, and everyone will hate you. Good morning. Welcome to church. <laughs> Membership cards are in each of the pews. How in the world do we make sense of our lives in light of this passage? And where is the good news? Well, in exploring that, the first thing to recognize, I think, again, is context. I, I think that Jesus' words, this passage from Luke, sound different, have to have sounded different 
to the different audiences living at different times. Different people living in far different circumstances. Three groups. One group of people would be the people to whom these words were originally addressed. Jesus' disciples, his closest followers. People living in Jesus' time. Let's say the, around the year 30. And to them, those words, Jesus' words, would have sounded like an ominous and likely very disturbing prediction of something that would be happening. The temple, in fact, would be destroyed, but not until the year 70. So at the time, at the time these disciples are hearing Jesus say this, there it was in all its splendor. It had not been destroyed. So that's one group of people, the people to whom these words would sound like some sort of ominous prediction. To another group of people, to Luke, writing this gospel, let's say around the year 90, 20 years after the destruction of the temple, and to Luke's original readers or listeners to these stories, living in, let's say, the first and second century of Christianity, to that group, these words would have sounded different yet again. Remember that the Christians living in the first couple hundred years of Christianity were a small and largely illegal sect of outsiders. They were folks undergoing persecutions. And remember that the vast majority of Christians living in the first couple hundred years of Christianity were people on the bottom of the socioeconomic pyramid, people on the bottom looking up, people on the outside looking in. And so to these readers, to this early church, this pre-conversion of Constantine, pre-Christendom church, this passage would have been an attempt to make sense of very recent and current events that were still unfolding. It would have helped them make sense of the persecutions they were suffering. And then to a third group of people, us, People living almost 2,000 years later. Many of us living lives of privilege and comfort. And Christendom, having been over those 2,000 years, as much a religious and social and economic persecutor of people than an entity that was persecuted by people, to us, living with that history, the words sound very different yet again. And I think that's the rub. Part of the struggle we modern-day Christians have with passages like this, living where we live and living when we live, is that for many of us, if not most of us, the passage just doesn't have the same entry point that it would have to those to whom it was originally spoken in the original readers of the passage. The passage, in other words, was written for people trying to make sense of the enormous daily hostility and persecution that they were encountering because they were acknowledging and following Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And by definition, to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior means to displace and to reject small g God's claims on our lives and loyalties. 
and the entities with vested interests in having us worship small g gods instead of the Lord God will oppose that and persecute that when those choices are made. So to those three groups, I still think that there is a general or several general underlying messages or, or take-home points from the passage that apply. The first take-home message from the passage I think that applies is, is that the passage is not meant, not meant to be a timeline or a checklist with which we could accurately predict whether or not we are living in the apocalyptic end time. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus was fairly consistent in saying, the precise time, no one knows. It comes like a thief in the night. Sure, there's signs, and yes, Jesus names some of the signs, but the awkward truth is, those signs don't help us much either. I'm no expert in world history, so if you are one, if you are an expert in world history, please correct me, preferably after the sermon. <laughs> but I venture to say that in the almost 2,000 years since these words were written, that somewhere worldwide, there has never, never been a 100-year or even a 50-year period where wars, insurrections, great earthquakes, famines, plagues, political persecutions, and personal betrayals have not taken place. We live in a unique and special time, just like every previous generation. So that's, I think, a first takeaway point, is we can't use passages like this to make a checklist of proof that we are living in some sort of end time. And two, even, even if we could, even if, even if this passage was some sort of final countdown checklist, even if we somehow knew for a fact that we're living in the last days, this wouldn't be the passage that we would turn to for primary guidance on how to live our lives in those days. Though one bit of guidance that Jesus does give in the passage, Jesus saying, this will give you an opportunity to testify, that's thrown in as almost a parenthetical comment. No, those of us who were at Bob Phillips' funeral yesterday, we heard then what is most likely the most important gospel passage on how to live in preparation for the final judgment. I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was in prison, and you visited me. In other words, the way to live in preparation for the end time, if it were the end time, is to recognize and respond to Jesus in the faces of the hungry and thirsty. The way to live is to, re is to recognize and respond to Jesus in the face of strangers, in the face of those who need clothing, the sick, and those who are incarcerated. How we treat them, we treat God incarnate. And the third, and I think perhaps the most fundamental or underlying takeaway from today's gospel passage is this. Our object of worship, 
our source of hope and trust and confidence is not a building. It's not any space or place, but rather it is God. This passage, in other words, has a lot to do with our inclination to fall into idolatry. It's interesting, the first commandment doesn't say there are no other gods. Israelites took for granted that there were dozens, if not hundreds of gods. It says, don't worship them. Don't put them at the center of your life. Don't bow down to them. Don't give them ultimate allegiance. And the first commandment doesn't just say, don't have any other gods but God. The first commandment tells us why. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God is a God of freedom. And God knows that anytime we put a small g God at the center of our lives rather than the Lord God, those small g gods will demand more and more and more from us and give back less and less and less. And the difference between small g gods and the Lord God is that while all gods demand more and more and more from us, the Lord God is the only God who loves us back. The Lord God is the only God who gives back more than we give to God. And you know that that dynamic plays itself out every single Sunday? When we take the bread and the wine and our financial gifts and they are brought up here and placed on this altar, what happens? Are they consumed in some sort of bolt of lightning or smoke and fire? No, the gifts of bread and wine and money are taken and blessed and broken and given right back to you. The bread is given to you in the form of the body of Christ. The wine is given to you in the form of the blood of Christ. And your money is given back to you in the forms of the ministries of this church and the outreach good news to Asheville and the wider world. You cannot outgive God. And that is what God wants us to know when we are tempted to put small g gods at the center of our lives. Our source of hope, our source of joy, that which is meant to be our center and our driving purpose is the Lord God of freedom and abundance. And worshiping that God, following Jesus, being a disciple, an apprentice of Jesus, means living a life that is similar to the one that Jesus lived. And one of the best summaries I've ever heard of the life that Jesus lived and the life that we are called to live as Christians is this. Full of joy and nearly always in trouble. That's because our source of hope, our source of joy, and our center, our driving purpose is not the things that don't give back. And whenever we put the Lord God at the center and displace the small g gods, there's trouble. Whenever we are tempted to worship as God things like wealth or power or our work or causes, we fall into displacing the Lord God of freedom. And as for those things like wealth and work and power and causes, the day will come when they are no longer 
None of those things. The temple itself, magnificent church buildings, wealth, power, work, causes, none of those things are inherently bad. And all of those things can be good and even God-given things. It's just that they're bad gods. They're unhealthy and ultimately destructive centers. All those small G gods demand more and give back less. But the good news, the good news this morning is that the difference between those small g false gods and the Lord God is the Lord God loves us back and equips us for more. The good news this morning is that God endures and therefore confidence in God endures. The good news is created in God's image and likeness and as followers of Jesus, we are to be in this world Every day, people who live lives that are full of joy and nearly always in trouble. 